Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on the Chattering Hour, I'm joined by the lovely Dee Wallace. And we talk about just some of the extraordinary films that she's worked on in her over 50-year career. Films such as The Hills Have Eyes, Stephen King's Cujo, The Howling, Critters, The Frighteners, and Rob Zombie's Halloween, and a little film called E.T., The Extraterrestrial. We talk about working with animals and children and so much more. Up next on the Chattering Hour, D. Wallace. And we're back with Dee Wallace. As well as the genre titles I've mentioned, Dee has over 250 film and TV credits to her name. She's also a motivational speaker and author. And during lockdown, she was directed by her daughter, Gabrielle Stone, in the horror short film, Stay Home. Dee, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. (laughs) So I'd like to take you back to the very beginning, if I may. Um, Oh, dear God. Wait, (laughs) do I have a memory that long? (laughs) Okay, I'll try. Okay, okay. Well, I was just thinking you were brought up in Kansas City. Is that right? Yep. Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City, Kansas. Um, That's a terrible accent, Nick. Um, (laughs) What was your childhood like? Well, it was... It was really yin and yang. Uh, it was a real dichotomy. My <clears throat> my family was religious, but not zealots. We were raised Methodists. Right. Um, my grandmother was one of the pillars of the church. Um, we were extremely poor. So my mom worked all her life. My dad was an alcoholic. Uh, he would probably worked up until I was eight or nine, maybe. And then he was just too far gone to work anymore. Um, So there was, my mother was a fabulous actress, which is why I became an actress watching her move people. Um, And (laughs) I started out as baby Jesus and ended up as the Virgin Mary before I went to find my own fame and fortune um, because she did all the religious plays at our church. Right. So it was, gosh, Didi, you can do anything. You're a bright light, you know, go out and conquer the world and juxtapose to... Um, I'm afraid I'm going to, everybody's going to die in my house every, every night. So if I don't take care of everybody and save everybody, they die and then I die. Um, it was, it was a, a dramatic roller coaster, right? but somehow, and largely due to my incredible mother and grandmother, I had really strong, powerful female figures right. that helped for me. And 
they were right. Um, actually, my daddy used to call me bright light. I just, well, we all do, but I, I just came in with this light and somehow that light won. Right. It right. won over all the drama, which is what's possible for all of us if we really are consciously creating who we want to be. Yes. Yeah. So in a nutshell, that was it. I was in Kansas until um, I was 27. I went to New York very late. I taught a year of high school, graduated from KU and taught a year of high school and went, mom, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. And she said, go ahead and be an actress, Dee Dee, but can't you do it in Kansas? And I don't think so, mom. Not the way I want to do it. So off I went. I'd never been out of Kansas in my life. And I just had this beautiful naivete and trust that I was going to be taken care of. And I always was. And uh, here I am. <laughs> and very successful as well. So did you, I mean, were, were films a large part? Because um, obviously you've done an awful lot of films as an actress. Were films part of your growing up? Did you get to go to the cinema much when you were growing up? Um, I wouldn't say we got to go much. Right. Probably maybe twice a month. Uh, because we, again, were very particular about how and where we spent our money. Right. Um, the thing that affected me the most was watching my mother perform uh, these half hour, what we call readings, we would call them monologues now. Right. And people from four states would come to watch her do these performances. And I literally can remember sitting there as an eight-year-old looking around and seeing all these adult people crying. And I went, oh, I want to do that. I want to do, I want to move people like my mommy does. Right, right. And so you you went on to do the university, you went to University of Kansas. Mm -hmm. And what were you studying there? I majored in theater education and um, with a minor in uh, psychology and journalism. Wow. And it, all of which I use yeah. every day in my life. Yeah. And, and was that, and did you go to university thinking, okay, this is the, the best way to become an actress? Because I know. Oh, hell no. <laughs> I went to the university because my mother said, please, please have something to fall back on. Right. So knowing her life and where that was coming from, um, and at that time in the 60s, women's lib was just starting, right? And so most young women picked very safe careers because our parents had come from very unsafe worlds mm -hmm. with world wars and yeah. money problems. And um, so I... I, I think I felt like I kind of owed that to my mom to give her that peace of mind. 
um, I'm a natural teacher. I love to teach. Right. So it wasn't anything that I hated or begrudged uh, having to do. Right. But I knew ultimately it wasn't the end all and be all of where I wanted to end up. I mean, I've been teaching all my all my life in school, in my own acting studio, my own dance studio. I, I teach in my healing work right now. So, um, but I think, I think teaching is kind of like acting. You're kind of born to do it or you're not. And it's also very much, I think, it's kind of giving a performance as well when you're actually in class. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Because you have to entertain the kids. Otherwise, they just check out. Yeah. You know, it's very much like uh, being a lawyer. When you're a lawyer, you have to perform. Right. right? So actually... I think almost every profession ends up having a performance quality waiting tables. You know, you are connecting one-on-one -on -one with the people. I've done that too, um, <laughs> that you are, are helping and serving and you have to have a certain energy, hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, that makes their day better and their experience at your restaurant better. Right, right. So, kind of. So, you've left university. You're teaching drama. What was your first professional acting job? <laughs> um, in New York, my first professional acting job was in The Stepford Wives, and I played the German maid. And I had one line, which was "Yeah." <laughs> But it was a real experience watching all those three actors, actresses and how differently they worked. It was eye-opening to me how a set was run and how all the different personalities were taken care of. And, you know, I got that uh, because I was running out of money. And so I went to interview for a receptionist position and Brian, the director kept walking out and he'd look at me and he'd walk out and he'd look at me. And he finally came over and he said, are you an actress? And I went, I am. He said, do you want to be in a movie? I went, I do. <laughs> and I thought, can it be this easy? <laughs> um, so I didn't have very much to do, but I had a credit, right? And um, I didn't do any more film work except for commercials. I did in New York hundreds of commercials in the two years that I was there. And, um, but the majority of my work, uh, I was also started out as a dancer. So I got my equity card and, um, no, I got my SAG card from commercials. I got my equity card from doing the Millican show. Right. And um, the Millican show was the biggest industrial show. All the best gypsies in New York did the Millican show. So I went to the open call 
and wearing my little homemade dress that my grandma had made me from Kansas. <laughs> and, um, and they left me and they hired me. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And not only was I paid more money than I'd ever made in my life, but we got to keep all our clothes. <laughs> and, um, and then I did a lot of industrial shows. And one of those shows was the Oldsmobile show. Um, I even remember part of the song, it was a tie a yellow ribbon round an Oldsmobile. <laughs> and so we danced our way across America to California. And I ran into one of the guys who was used to be in my acting class. And he, was signed with Brett Adams. And I said, I'll get you an appointment with my commercial agent that I already have out here. If you'll get me an appointment with Brett Adams. And it worked and we both got signed. And, you know, that was kind of the start of an actual career. Right, right, right. <laughs> I love. I just love the idea of you dancing to tie a yellow ribbon round the. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also danced as a kugel peanut across America. Kugel peanut with cuckoo kugely eyes. Oh! Yeah. Why I remember these stupid things? Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm just trying to get that image. The process. The image of you. <laughs> we had great big. Great big eyeballs on us, on hot pink, very high up cut costumes. <laughs> hey, it was a paycheck. What can I say? Oh, absolutely, not judging at all. I just, you know, I think I once danced for. It was the launch of a Ford car in the UK. We came uh -huh. on, you know, for all the salespeople did the show for the salespeople. And I remember that nothing as glamorous as that in terms of costume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, move us on a bit to one, I mean, your first horror film, and that is The Hills Have, Have Eyes in 1977 uh, with Wes Craven. How did that come about? I auditioned. Um, I went in and auditioned and had a call back and uh, and got the got the role. Starting out at the ripe age of twenty nine or thirty, playing um, a mother already, <laughs> right? Uh, and I had the the film that I had done right before that was a religious film uh, that I did with Grant Goodeve called All the King's uh, Horses. And um, it was about a battered wife of an alcoholic, a subject I knew quite well. Right. Not that I ever saw my mom get hit, but right. verbally berated every night. And so um, it, it kind of sums up really the dichotomy of who I am. I play Half my life I'm I'm playing in horror films and the other half of my life I'm healing people from fear. Works for me. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what what did you think of the 
presumably you knew it was a horror film going in when you did the audition. But what oh, did you sure. think of the script when you? Oh, I thought the script was great, but you know, I was a starting actress. Right. It was a job. It was the lead in a film, right? right? I didn't care. I didn't even think to ask that all of us were staying in one motorhome in the Mojave Desert during shooting and the bathroom broke. I mean, it was, it was challenging. It was, I think within three miles of where SAG would have, they would have had to put us up if it were three miles further. So finally the fourth night, I, I came home probably around 2 a.m. And Christopher, my husband looked at me, he said, you're not driving home anymore. We're gonna get you a hotel room. I said, but I'm only making scale. He says, I don't care, honey, it's too dangerous. So for the rest of the shoot, I, I purchased my own motel room, a very cheap motel room. But he was right. It was not, not safe to work those grueling scenes that we had and then drive two hours home at 2 a.m. in the morning It just and get up the next day and do it all over again. Um, and then, you know, we'd go from shooting days into shooting nights. And um, yeah, it was challenging. I spent a lot of time in my car on that shoot. What was Wes Craven like? To, I mean, apart from the sheer physical toughness of it, what was uh, Wes Craven like? Oh, Wes is his... great. He's he's pretty much like everybody says. It, it, the Wes I worked with, mm. you know, he was a college professor, and um, he was very quiet. Uh, very studious, very soft, knew what he wanted, but didn't, like when I think of Joe Dante had a presence, right? I, I don't remember his presence that much, which is interesting to me. Maybe it's just because it was so long ago, but I remember Louis Teague's presence on the set and certainly Stevens and Peter Jackson's, you know, but I just remember thinking it was a really kind guy. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, because he kind of has that, whenever I've seen him interviewed and he has that, as you say, very professorial yeah. um, demeanor about him. Well, that's who he is. Right, right. And you very kind, very kind. You then went on to do what I consider, I was watching it for the first time this afternoon, uh, Blake Edwards 10. Yes, you, you, this is your first time seeing it? I've never seen it before. It was just oh my God, it's such a wonderful movie. I, was kind of, I think when it came out, I was kind of like, do I really want to watch a film about a guy having a middle-age crisis? What's to attract me to this? And I was like- Dudley Moore. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's to attract you. Yeah. Oh my God, I so loved working with Dudley. He he was the sweetest, kindest, funniest. I just, I would just walk on the set and hope I could keep up with Dudley. 
because you never knew what Dudley was going to do. I swear to God, it, it was right at the beginning when we were starting to use monitors and right. the director wasn't right. So um, Blake was on the Sam stage next to us and we finished doing our first scene and nobody talked until Blake talked and everybody's waiting and he went, well, I don't know who the hell wrote it, but we're going to print it. And of course he wrote it. But Dudley had just gone everywhere and I had to follow him, right? Um, so it was, it was an interesting, safe exploration into being free on the set. Because I have to say, one of the, there is that old cliche, there are no small parts, only small actors. You're seeing particularly the bit, I'm beginning to well up a little bit here, the scene in the bathroom in front of the mirror as one of the most heart-rending things I think I've watched in a while. Oh, thank you. <laughs> because you nailed it, Dee. It was just like, it is only, I mean, you've got one, two, three, four, I think, scenes really, because as you're in the, you know, being picked up in the bar, in the bedroom, the following morning, walking on the beach. On the beach, oh my God. Yeah, I got to do some comedy, which I was really happy yeah, about yeah, too. Yeah, and, and, and then and you were talking about Dudley Moore um, improvising, watching him play piano. Um, just yeah. abs absolutely. I mean, that close-up was not in it. They'd already broken the camera to move it. And I was just sitting there watching Dudley play, which he did often between takes. And it just moved me so much. And Blake turned around and looked at me and he went, everybody stop, bring the cameras back. We're gonna get a close up of me. You see, that's a good director. And that's happened to, that's happened with me in all the great directors I've worked with. Right. They're not so freaking locked in to an idea that they can't see a moment when it happens. Same thing happened on ET with the uh, dinner table scene. And when he says he's in Mexico with Sally, well, I wasn't supposed to well up. I wasn't supposed to leave the table. And all of a sudden that hit me so hard. And I remember thinking, I don't want the kids to see me cry. So I got up and Stephen came over and he says, Dee, why did you get, what, what happened? And I explained to him and he looked at me and went, guys, I, I need you to build uh, an addition of the kitchen right over here. I need a sink where we can take her to and, and I need running water and they, you got a half an hour and they built it. And so he took me over to that sink so he could turn me into that big close up where I say he hates Mexico. Wow. wow. Yeah, but that's the magic you see when, when everybody has the freedom to do what hits them, what inspires them, what takes them over. Um, I know on ET, Alan Davio even would throw in wonderful suggestions. 
uh, that would ignite something in me. You know, it was every set I've been on, I mean, the howling, uh, the last night we had the set where we were on the ranch and we had to film um, the, the the big barn where all the werewolves mm. and, and it was the last night and our generator broke. And do you know, everybody got together and pulled their car up and turned their headlights on. And that's how we lit that scene. Wow. And it's magical. It's extraordinary. It, yeah. It, it has a whole feeling that's different and eerie and weird, you know, but that's what I mean. You, you have to, the magic for me is not knowing, is letting everything happen. And when things hit me and I don't know they're coming, I know I'm really where I'm supposed to be then. Wow. Wow. That's excellent because I was going to ask you about the howling, which I have seen before, <laughs> but watched again this afternoon. Uh, sorry, I watched it yesterday and then went back and watched it again. It really holds up, doesn't it? Holds up extraordinarily. Funnily enough, I think the last five minutes of the film in today's, in the days of fake news and what can we believe that's going on. Yeah. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um, and and I, I mean, you know, there are lots of other things to, that I love about that movie and there are the sexiness and the 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 sheer viscerality. I think I've just made up a word. How vis yeah. <laughs> viscerality. It is viscerous. <laughs> what, well, what and, you know, a lot of that, so much of it is owed to Joe Dante. Um, he just had a vision and... Uh, all of the cartoons and the old movie clips he ended up paying for himself because the studio didn't want to spring the money and it really elevates the film so very much you know yeah no it, it, re it really does and for those of you who haven't uh, seen it go out and watch yeah, the howling you know everybody thinks I said well I'll do the film if you hire my husband I <laughs> I had no way to do that back then. I had to go in and audition and have a call back. And then Dan Blatt, our wonderful producer, called me and said, Dee, we've got a great cast lined up, but we, we just can't find your husband yet. And I said, well, exactly what are you looking for? And when he explained it, I went, well, shit, I'm living with a guy. But as soon as I had that thought, I went, oh, don't say that, Dee, they'll never hire him. So I said, you know, Dan, I worked with this actor, Christopher Smith or Christopher Stone or something on Chips. He might be really right for this. So they went out and they found him on their own and called him in and he got the part. <laughs> and the next day, Dan calls and I pick up the phone and he goes D and I went hey Dan and he says I'm I'm sorry I must have called the wrong number I was you know that actor you recommended we we hired him and I called to 
talked to him and I went, no, you've got the right number, Dan. And he went, pause, pause. Oh, shit. <laughs> I said, don't worry. We won't gang up on you. You'll only have to get one trailer instead of two. And ultimately, he was very happy that Chris was on board because in those days, Sometimes in those really hysterical scenes, I really got into it and went off into La La Land. And Chris was very good at bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's again, it's that thing of having, feeling safe when you're feeling comfortable enough and safe enough and secure enough as an actor to go to those places during the Well, movie. yeah, and uh, you know, we worked entirely different ways. Chris broke everything down. He worked on beats. I don't do any of that. I read the script and I use the method that my mentor, Charles Conrad, taught me, which is getting your energy so high, you literally bypass your, your mind. So you, you're kind of channeling the character. And... Um, we got to the scene in bed where he's supposed to haul off and slap me and Dan says, well, I know you guys must have worked on this last night. You live together. Let me see what you what you got. And Chris looked at him and he said, I'm sorry, my leading lady doesn't rehearse. <laughs> and, and, and Joe just looked at us and and I went, I know he knows how to do a stage slap and I know I know how to take one. And if he hits me, he doesn't get any sex for months. So it'll be fine. <laughs> and I think we got it in one take, you know. <laughs> I just wanted to <laughs> love that. I love that. Nice to hear the inside stories, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. I wanted to bring you back to E.T., which obviously you've touched upon. Working with the children, what was it like? I mean, you had very young children to work. How old was Drew Barrymore when she was? I dead? think she was four, four or six. She was young enough that she still didn't distinguish between fantasy and reality. For example, um, we were getting ready to do the scene where E.T.'s dying mm. and all the doctors are around. And I, I went to get her because uh, I'm very motherly with all the kids that I work with. And I said to her, Drew, now you remember E.T.'s just acting like we're acting. So he's not really dying. He's just acting that way and the doctors are acting like they're being mean to him and she looked at me and she said I know Dee do you think I'm stupid so I picked her up we walked onto the set got in place she took one look at E.T. and went he's dying he's dying right and I see Stephen going roll it and I'm going well shit get into it Like Cujo, I mean, forget it. You you always had to be on. You always have to be on with kids because you never know when their magic's going to happen like right. that. 
right? And and so it was. It just was magical, again. <laughs> uh, but that's how. I mean, we would look over, and Drew would be talking to ET, who was in the corner. So Stephen had two guys on ET all the time, being able to nod and blink, you know, and and move his head back and forth because Drew would be talking to him and we wanted to create the illusion for her that he was alive. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. And you, you just touched on Cujo and I do want to talk to you about Cujo because again, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I read this, this is one of your favorite. It is my favorite film. It yeah. is your favorite. I just feel like I went as far as I could go, as truthfully as I could go there. And what was the experience? I mean, how did you approach hell. it on the day? Say again. <laughs> the experience shooting it was hell. That's what it was. I mean, it was relentless. It was every scene. How much do I break down? When do I break down? How do I break down? Uh, it was, and you know, I'm working with a six-year-old kid and a dog. So when the kid and the dog work, they print it. So D has to be on balls out every single solitary scene. I was exhausted. They actually treated me for exhaustion at the end of the picture. Wow. My all my adrenals were blown. I still to this day take um raw adrenal to keep my adrenals pumped up because I just completely depleted them. A lot of people don't understand that um, your body doesn't know you're acting. Your body goes through the same chemical reactions and creations as if you are really in fight or flight. So when you're doing a film where you're in fight or flight the entire film, a lot of your physical body gets taxed, especially the way I work. Not yes. so sure that's true with George Clooney, the way he works. Because he can, he can get out of a scene and crack a joke. Yeah, not, I wish, no, not the way I work for me doesn't it's work. It is interesting. We we um Courtney Gaines was one of my previous guests. Oh, I love Courtney. And he was talking about an actor who he's worked with who can just turn it on, turn it off. Scout Taylor Compton. She can do a highly emotional scene and then go play with the kids on the set. I'm better at it. I mean, back when I did 10. Years after I did 10, my mom and I were talking about how I had learned to not bring my characters home with me. And she said, wait here just a minute, I wanna show you something. And she went back and got a letter that I had written to her during 10. And I read it and I went, Oh my God, Mom, Mary Lewis wrote this. I didn't write this. She said, I know. <laughs> I just saved it. So, so someday I could show you how far gone you were. <laughs> but, you know, it, it rocks my boat to let 
them take me over. And I have learned um, in order to take care of myself, I have to leave them at the set when I come home. Right, right, right. Yeah, fear and self-protection. Now, I have to ask you, um, Uh (laughs) after Cujo, are you okay with dogs? Do you get on well with dogs? Oh, my God, yes. I I love dogs. I I have a little rescue now right. called Freedom. All my dogs have been rescues. Um, but those dogs were so well-trained. They were St. Bernard's. They were so well-trained to go after toys, we literally had to tie their tails down. Because I think there's a couple of shots that they left their tails wagging because it was really ominous. Um, but they were trained within an inch of their lives. Right, and, right. And always, so it was all a big game to them. One dog, like they call action and the trainer, Carl Miller, uh, would go, dig, dig for your toy. And he go, right. And his tail was wagged because he was going to get his toy. He was going to get his toy. So um, as soon as we called cut, they were just docile. And unfortunately, we couldn't interact with them very much because they they had to listen to the trainer. Sure. But when they got ferocious and they got this close to you, it was pretty damn easy to get into that emotion that the scene where he knocks me down and gets mm. on top of me, right? Okay, so they had a medic on the scene at all times for the dogs and for us, but for the dogs. <laughs> Mostly for the dogs. A vet. And so they sedated the dog. And then they put the dog on top of me. Now the dog wasn't out all the way. And I could hear him going, and I'm already like three sheets to the wind into this emotion that I have to do in this scene. And I said, are you sure he's out? Are you sure he's out? He's out, D. And then Louis Teague, our director, goes, can you raise him up and down like you're fighting him? So I'm bench pressing this 150-pound dog that's not out all the way in total trust, right? That he's not gonna wake up and eat me in the state, the the emotional state that I was in. So people just have no idea went into making that that movie, the scene where I break the back window. Mm -hmm. Lewis comes up to me and says, Dee, we're gonna shoot this in slow motion. So I really, really need you to hit the window hard. You can't break it, it's treated. Yeah. So we had rehearsed the whole thing all the way up to me taking him up to the house, just so we didn't get locked into anything, right? So we'd rehearse the whole thing. Well, on the third hit, I broke the window. And I don't hear cut. So... I crawl over the glass and this part of my head is going, 
get the kid, get the kid. You've got to get the kid up to the house. And this part of me is going, don't drag him over the glass. The glass wasn't here when you rehearsed it. The glass, you know, you've got to pick him up. Get the kid to the house. Don't take him. You know, I'm like going in and out of Donna and Dee during that scene. And I get him out of the car. I still don't hear cut. And so I keep going up to the house. And as soon as I get up to the house, they yell cut. And Dan runs up and goes, oh my God, are you all right? Well, I slipped my arm and it was bleeding. And he called the medic and they put some uh, flesh colored bandage around it. And Dan said, do you think you could do one more take just in case we didn't get that one? <laughs> but, and so, sure, yeah. And then, and then we went to see the doctor. Um, <laughs> the, big, uh, the big scene in the car where Cujo attacks me. Brilliant, brilliant editing. It was me and the stuntman and the stuntwoman and the real dog. Now, again, the dog was trained to go after this toy that was put around her neck. And when she leaned forward, that was the dog's cue to lunge toward her. And when she pulled back, the dog would automatically pull back. That's how well these dogs were trained. Wow. wow. So I had begged Dan. I said, let me do this. I can do this. I can do the whole scene with a real dog. I can do this. And he was gonna. And at the last minute, he said, you know, D, you're the money. And if we, if something happens, we're down and the shoot's dead. So I did my part and the stunt woman got in and did her part. And at the end, Lewis says, cut, we got it. And she went, great. And nobody had a hand on the dog. And so the dog leaped forward and bit her the tip of her nose off. Wasn't the dog's fault. He was doing what he was supposed to do. Um, so anyway, they took her to the hospital and they sewed it back on and she looks gorgeous. She looks absolutely gorgeous. So it was all okay, but you know, people don't really realize everything that can happen to you on shoots like this. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully the next thing I'd like to talk about which just looked a lot more fun, which was Critters. Oh, Critters. Oh, my God. We had so much fun on Critters, although we had to work mostly nights. But we would stand, we would all be ready to do the scene, and we'd be in our, in our emotion, and then we'd hear the director go, okay, roll them in. <laughs> and all the guys were over there. Literally, most of the Critters were just big, hairy balls that they rolled across the set. It was they hadn't built the big critter yet. Um, so you only saw the eyes and the head in that one scene through the window. Um, it was crazy. It was a crazy shoot. I love that movie, though. I think it's so well done. It's so much fun. And for Lino, I mean, those rolling critters are incredibly effective and actually really terrifying because actually... Yeah much more so than if they were walking or, you know, just because Terrifying the speed at which they come. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. They're funny too. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I love it when that that one critter gets shot and he goes, fuck. <laughs> I mean, that's just come on. Yeah. That's a, that's brilliant. <laughs> What the next film I'd like us to move on to, and I, I think was just a complete because I think we've been talking about you're playing mothers mostly in the in the ones that we've been talking about. And the next one I'd like to talk about is The Frighteners. Oh. Which was a very different change of tone in terms of the sort of character that you were playing. Yeah. That's why I wanted to do it. I mean, what actress? doesn't want to play this simpy, ugly, weak victim that morphs into this strong mother of a character, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I read that and I had to go in and audition and um, I just went for it. I went for every, I did all the physicality. Thank God for my dancing. And I finished and I said, Mr. Jackson, I just want to say, picture me with black hair because I can't do this role like this. And I, I think they booked me um, before I even got home for that. <sighs> that. And working with Peter Jackson was just that whole experience and it a lot of people don't know I lost my husband while I was filming uh that first he had a heart attack so they flew me back and he was okay and I flew back to finish the film and four days later a blood clot hit his heart and he was gone and so I had to fly back and put on his service and you know Peter said D we never thought you'd be back and, um, but I wasn't raised that way. My mom always taught me, you take a job, you finish that job. And, um, and I flew back, uh, seriously, I didn't know where I was half the time. You know, New Zealand's halfway across the world mm. and I'd flown it uh, four times in two weeks. And, I, the, the production, of course, took care of all my flights and everything. They mm -hmm. said, don't worry, do you can settle up with us at the end. Well, I just figured I had a good film, but I didn't have any money because everything was going to be spent on those flights. And I went into accounting to settle up with them at the end. And she said, oh, no. Um, Peter's just going to take care of this for you, D. That's the kind of guy Peter Jackson wow. is. And wow. I mean, I watched him from the best boy all the way through the producers. If anybody had a problem or an issue, it was addressed. And it was respected and listened to and something was done about it and rectified if it was in Peter's ability to do that. Made a big impression on me. Right, right, right. Um, there was one other director I'd like to 
talk to you about because I know you've done about uh, three at least films with them. That's Rob Zombie. Yeah. <laughs> I love the guy. Love him, love him, love him. Talk about giving you freedom on the set. Rob is like, what's your idea? Okay. <laughs> I mean, not to say that he doesn't know exactly what he wants, but he also knows that he, if he gives you the freedom, everybody the freedom to mm. bring in their best stuff, that he gets what he wants, sometimes in a really unique way that nobody ever saw on their own, but together, the magic is just amazing. I love working with Rob. Yeah, I... <laughs> One of my favorite moments from uh, Lords of Salem is when you pick up the um, iron frying pan and take it to Bruce, poor Bruce Davison. <laughs> but it's just the look on your face to you, and it's just like so fed up with this guy. It, yeah, a lot of that too is improv improvisation. Right. Um, you know, I believe I have the line, oh, that felt good. Yes. I think that's what it is. All improv. That was right. all improv. Um, and three from hell with uh, Miss Sherry. Oh boy, did we have fun doing that. He sent me that script and I read it and I went, oh my God, I really want to do this part, Rob, but I have to dye my hair brown. I have to look really ugly. I, I think she's got glasses, maybe hormone glasses. I just... I need to look like dowdy and shitty. And he went, yeah, okay. Uh, and it just worked. Uh, he actually had a critic call him and say, Rob, I'm reviewing your film and I really love it. Did you cut Dee Wallace out? Because her name's in the credits, but I don't see her in the film. He said, oh, she's there, watch it again watch it again and he wrote back and he said my god I had no idea that was her and I thought that's the best compliment you can give an actor right yeah. is that we so become somebody else yeah 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 no absolutely had it happened to me once in my career and it was just like oh did it did it yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's great feedback, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to, because we're coming to the end, rapidly moving towards the end of the hour, and I, something I do want to talk about, and you mentioned earlier on, is motivational speaking and teaching, and you've written. Mm -hmm. When did this become a real part? Because you talked about the two things, that are parts of your life. Yeah. When did this really become important oh, to God. you? Oh, um, God about 30 years ago now. Um, I've written five books. I just finished my sixth book. It's not out yet. Um, it's called The Art of Self-Creation. Um, I have a weekly radio show that's on every Sunday morning right. at 9 a.m. Eastern uh, Pacific Standard Time. Uh, I do webinars and I do private sessions. I have four or five private sessions a day Wow! where I, I'm a clairaudient channel and um, 
my, my great gift that I've been given is uh, that I'm able to listen to words and reach into people's energy and hear what their blocks are and when those blocks were created in their lives. And what I want people to realize, give them a little insight here is how we think of ourselves and how we think of ourselves in the world and how the world works pretty much complete in our brains by eight years old. That's science. And so whatever you were taught or whatever you were modeled in your early childhood, the beliefs that you've created from then, you have built your life on. So if you're wondering why you keep running into the same walls or why you can't expand your money or why you keep attracting the same asshole to be with, um, go back to your early childhood. You will get a lot of insight. I have a really great uh, TED Talks on yes, uh, YouTube yeah. that you should check out if you're interested in looking into this further. So it, um, it happened because when Chris died, I kind of fell to my knees and I said, you know, I don't want to be pissed off. I don't want to be a victim. Right. I want a way we can heal ourselves. And like, bam, I, I got my first message. Right. Right. So, and it's just um, expanded and expanded from that. Right. Well, I was watching the TED talk earlier on uh, uh, oh, today. Nice. It is like, yeah, talking, in the TED talk, you talk about five years old and, and the research that have been done on this. And I'll make sure there's a link when we oh, put great. this up on Thank YouTube. You. We can we can link to that as well. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, you've recently produced a short film called Stay Home. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that, please. Uh, well, I had this idea. You know, a lot of people when the pandemic hit went, oh, no, I won't be able to work. I won't be able to do anything. I know from my work, You've got to get up every day and say, what can I create? I am vital. What can I create today? And I got this idea to do a horror film, a short. It's about 20 minutes. Just for the fans, just to give them back something. So I called Scout Taylor Compton and Danielle Harris and Kane Hodder and Barbara Crampton. And they said, we're in D. And my daughter and Chris Heck co-directed it. And we all filmed our own stuff in our own homes. And it's, it's the horror version, of course, you know, in the pandemic, you're safer if you stay home. Well, not in our movie. <laughs> And um, it's just gotten really uh, great reviews. You can find it on YouTube. And um, yeah, I'm just really proud of it. I'm really, really proud of it. It's a, and um, the UK, that we have a thing called Staged um, with a couple of actors, David Tennant and Michael Sheen, uh -huh. playing versions of themselves. Uh, again, 
it's amazing what has come out you know what creativity yeah it's extraordinary you know and uh the, the stuff that people have actually been able to create in these challenging circumstances yeah um, what i look i haven't i hadn't heard about that before i should look forward to checking that out now before i let you go if i may i'd just like to ask you some questions that i ask everybody oh dear god i'm so bad <laughs> at these all right i'll give it a shot okay so i've titled it it's called the luggage in the crypt and it's this idea of you know egyptian pharaohs and just what you would like to have with you on your next journey basically on your next big journey so if i said okay and it's an impossible question to answer i guess but if you had to choose a film that you'd like to you know take with you what would your favorite film be that oh a film to take with me oh my god well it would have to be something up and inspiring and with a really positive perspective on life. I don't know. E.T. wouldn't be bad. The Wizard of Oz wouldn't be bad. Um, just something joyous and positive yeah. uh, as my intention to take into the next world. And for sure, I would have a dog. <laughs> have to have a dog. Have to have a dog. I have to have a dog wherever I go. That's great. What about a book? What book would you take? Um, I would take... Can I have two books? Yes, of course. Okay. I would take Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Okay. And I would take Mind to Matter by Dawson Church. Oh, these are completely new to me. These, these. Oh, my gosh. You want to change your life, read those two books. Okay. One of them comes from the creation process uh, from the religious point of view, mm -hmm. and the other one is a scientist who brings religion, spirituality, uh, and science all together. And it, it's both books changed my life. The wow. third book would probably be Ramtha the White Book. Okay. And maybe one of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and what about um, an album? Music. Oh, the 60s. I would take uh, I would take a compilation of this best 60s music. So we're talking Beatles and Mamas and Papas. Beach Boys, and... Mamas and Papas, yeah. Uh, this sounds... Yeah, sounds like my playlists, yeah. Yeah. All the great music that we just had fun to instead of some of the laborious, angry music that we have today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, it was a very joyous time, the 60s. I, yeah, I was, I was 12 when it ended. Um, it was a great time to be a kid. It was a great time to be it a was. kid. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was. It was. It was. It was a time of innocence. Mm -hmm. and we need to get that back. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but also a time of innocence, but also a time of struggle and and civil rights and fight. You know, really strong fighting for what was right yeah. and peace and love, 
Um, yeah, yeah, I like, okay, great choice. A piece of visual art, a statue, a painting. A picture. Sorry. <laughs> See, that's, that's one of those moments that I hope to capture on film. A picture of my daughter. Oh, Gabrielle. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Absolutely perfect. I saw me. Oh, bless. Bless. Will you talk? Yes. Dee, this is, uh, this is our hour. Um, and I have to say, this has just been so in incredibly inspiring. Oh, um, thank you. I've had a great deal of fun <laughs> looking back on my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully to continue going. Oh. I've got three or four films coming out, when and if films come out again. I was going to say, is there anything, you, you talked about doing the lockdown stuff and so on, is there anything else set in stone at the moment or just is it stuff? Well, I, I just finished an arc on a really nice television show, but I have not been given permission to talk about it yet. Right. Um, although I think my episode airs in two weeks, so I have to email my agent and ask if I can talk about it now. Um, and I'm in uh, talks with uh, three people about films now. Um, so there's a, yeah, if you want to create more in your life, check out some of my work. I'm a pretty darn prolific creator. You really are. I know the numbers. I Yes, no, absolutely. And if anybody's interested in channeling, uh, on February, I think it's 23rd or 24th, I'm doing a whole webinar on how to channel. Okay. Okay. Well, again, we'll just put up, we'll make sure we've got a link to the website. Uh, if you let right. me know, because um, Josh, this is going to be broadcast on Thursday of next week. Um, I, Perfect. If, if you let me know if, what the TV show is beforehand. I will. I, I'll, I will it, know I'll put by it across then, the bottom sure. of the screen. I'll put it up across the bottom of the screen. Okay. Dee, thank you very much indeed. And well, thank you for how well prepared you were. It's so refreshing to do an interview with somebody who's so well prepared. Thank well, you. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Bye. Blessings, everybody. Bye. My thanks again to Dee Wallace. And the links to her website and the short film and the TED Talk are in the description. Join me next week, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Thank you.